Hunter.net. Good morning. It's the second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock, time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio WERU-FM, Blue Hill 89.9, 102.9 in Bangor. Boat Talk is your local call-in radio show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors. Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, we attempt to answer such uh, diverse marine questions as um, our amphibious vehicles partly towed. T-O- oh, uh, that T-O-A-D? Several levels there, aren't there? <laughs> That's like that main humor. You might not get it at first, and some of you may never get it, but you could be just going along later on, and all of a sudden you'll be off the road. Yeah, be careful it, when you know? you're sailing. one 9378 is the number into Boat Talk if you have anything that you'd like to talk about marine-wise. And it is also our pledge drive time right now. And uh, if you'd like to make a pledge and d- make it doing Boat Talk, you can do that by dialing 1-800-643-6273 and speak with Larry and Judith out there, our phone answerers. Judith actually is going to do double duty, come in here and talk with us in a little bit about sailing single-handed across the pond. But we'll first uh, get to uh, the bad news department. Yeah, very sad news this morning. We'd like to dedicate this uh, edition of Boat Talk to Tom Morris. Tom Morris, yes, the uh, the founder and heart of Morris Yachts on in Mount Desert Island. Um, I've known Mount, Tom for, for quite a few years, and um, Tom started out in the early 70s uh, making, actually finishing off, uh, finishing out fiberglass friendship hulls for um, Jarvis Newman, and then after a few years, decided he was going to just go off on his own and uh, got together with Chuck Payne and started devi- designing uh, small sailboat hulls and finished them out himself. And Small sailboats, too, like yep. the 28-foot, 26, 28-foot, yep. the Francis, the double-ender, little double-enders, cute little boats. Yep, cute little boats. Um, just delivered a 28-footer up from Gloucester, Massachusetts, okay? And uh, we're on the boat in Gloucester Harbor, mind you. I had, I had to go into Gloucester Harbor because the boat hadn't been used all year, and the prop was all barnacled up, and I ended uh. up swimming in Gloucester Harbor that September afternoon. But anyway, <laughs> we're looking at this boat, and I'm, I'm looking around at the gear on the deck. I'm going, that's a removable inner forestay. Why does it have one of those? I said to myself, I wonder who's ever used it. So I, I asked the owner and, and uh, my buddy Captain Andy, why has it got one of those? He says, well, because Tom Morris and Chuck Payne are salty as hell. Yep. And uh, you think it's ever been used? No, probably not, but it's there. That's you know? typical of Tom Morris. He used yeah. to do a lot of thinking about boats, and when he wasn't thinking, he was dreaming about boats and often invented his own little hardware and uh, ways of doing things. I just the other day happened to notice on the new Morris M36s, the uh, backstay tang is actually a combination backstay tang um, flag holder. Yeah. It has a socket welded onto the back right. of it. Yeah. No, uh, very, very well thought out. And, of course, Chuck Payne is, is uh, you couldn't find a better designer. He has done a lot of the Morris boats. And uh, Tom Morris, if uh, we haven't made it clear yet, Tom passed away yesterday. Yeah, uh, Tom had cancer. Sunday, yes. Yeah, Tom had cancer. And, uh, you know, he'd been doing fairly well for the last couple of years, been out and about, and uh, even building the boat, wasn't he? Yes, he was. He, yeah. Yep. He, uh, like I said, never couldn't, could never stop thinking about boats. And uh, 
was just always planning on spending some time on the water. There is a Maine Boat Builders Hall of Fame, and I guarantee you Tom's in it. If he's not already, he's uh, certainly going to be. The Morris Company, um, again, started out uh, very, very uh, humbly uh, just finishing off fiberglass uh, uh, friendship Friendship sloops for Jarvis Newman, uh, went into business for themselves and have been growing ever since. And arguably, Morris makes one of the best sailboats in the world. Um, That's... That's not a statement that's hard at all to back up. Boat of the year um, a bunch of times through Cruising World or yachting or whoever does that. Um, I have built uh, Hinkley's. I've sailed Hinkley's. I've uh, built a uh, sort of I built a Morris. I turned the Morris 40-foot plug into a sailboat, but anyway, uh, or helped anyway. And uh, and I've sailed uh, most of what I sail nowadays is Morris's. And I tell you what, I'd, I'd take one of those any day over about anything. Well, you're right. It's uh, Tom was uh, definitely a boat builder first, and uh, not the sort of person who uh, has the uh, the tendency to design things on paper without really having the experience and uh, the knowledge of what it takes to make all these little fine designs and. Uh, details and uh, Tom knew what he was doing when he came to building boats and yeah the Morris company has expanded significantly they now have uh, what several yards they have the facility in Trenton at the airport where they now have their main manufacturing right they have uh, two service yards one in Northeast Harbor and one in Bass Harbor and uh, basically a worldwide reputation and uh, a pretty healthy little uh, workforce there. I'm guessing 150 odd people, more or less. Uh, right. Yeah, probably closer to 100, but still. It's, yeah. It's a, but uh, a very uh, significant, um, you know, uh, thing in down East Maine here. And uh, Kyler Morris, Tom's son, is now helming the company. Yeah. It's a very small little boat play, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and they have uh, in the last couple of years established uh, the M series, which has been kind of a kind of a little genius thing for them. Boy, it sure is. It's yeah. a pretty little boat, and they've been shipped all around the world. There's some in Japan and some over in yeah. Europe. In a way, it's uh, I think a triumph of marketing, sort of like the Hinkley jet boats. Um, you know, they established those, and then everybody had to have one. They were the coolest thing in the harbor. You know, Martha Stewart's got one. Well, you know, nowadays uh, the the Morris Day Sailors are just the coolest thing in the harbor. Um, they are pretty, and they are very easy to sail, and they're sporty. I had the opportunity this uh, fall to bring two of them up. We did a uh, 36 came up from um, I think that one was Greenwich, Connecticut, and uh, we did a 40. 42 from uh, somewhere else, I forget. But, uh, you know, uh, very, very nice little boats to sail. Yeah, they're actually fairly narrow. They probably slip along quite nicely. Oh, wicked. And uh, I must say, though, going out on deck, um, the the jib is self-tacking, and it has... uh, uh, you know, a, a car up a in, front of, in the, front of the house. Yeah, in front of the house. And it has two stops on it, and you kind of want to set the stops to, you know, prevent the thing from self-tacking and stuff. Um, so you, you do sometimes have to go up forward. And I'm telling you, at night in the Gulf of Maine, 
to uh, go up forward on that boat with no lifelines, mm-hmm. um, with your ass hanging out in the air there, um, <laughs> you are very conscious of the fact that that's a day sailor. I just what a sweet some little boat though. On one of those, as a matter what of a me. sweet little boat. The uh, the little one, the thirty six. We didn't have a. Um, there was no stove on it, let alone any any lifelines. It's a day sailor. It's a day sailor for sure. Yeah, that one came up from Marion, Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember now. There's a very interesting article in this month's Professional Boat Building about Tom Morris and Morris Yacht. It's, oh no! Oh, yeah, it's a very nice, nice, nicely written and a nice, long, detailed article on Morris yachts. So, recommend anybody uh, pick up a copy of Professional Boat Builder this month. It's yeah, a, definitely. The, worth uh, it. It's a great magazine. Thirty-six foot uh, Morris uh, delivery. We took some uh, already cooked lasagna and we triple wrapped it and uh, laid it in the engine compartment for a couple hours, you know, <laughs> and made a salad. And so we had a, a beautiful several course dinner. Uh, that was warm, wasn't, you know, uh, and there are ways to be elegant. On it the didn't get on the engine, did it? it no, it was a beautiful thing all the way around. <laughs> so anyway, Tom Morris, uh, like I say, main boat builder Hall of Fame and uh, passed away this weekend. Yeah. We dedicate this issue of uh, Boat Talk yeah. to Tom Morris. Condolences to uh, Kyler and family. Yeah. Yeah, man, uh, the world turns and, and life goes on and it's snowing outside and we're sitting in here doing Boat Talk this morning. What a better day. <laughs> I guess. So anyway, the number this morning, we got several numbers now, don't we? Yes, we do. Yeah, let's not get confused. Okay, if you'd like to make a pledge to uh, Boat Talk or to WERU, the number to call 1-800-643-6273. We particularly like to hear anybody who is listening on the web from uh, points distant, especially if you're a a sailor in uh, some other place and appreciate Boat Talk. You can pledge online, too, or call 1-800-643-6273. And do we tell them how to talk to us? Oh, that's true, too. That would yeah. be a good thing. It's uh, technically speaking a call-in show. we got no guests this morning. we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And uh, we ought to uh, preview that uh, this show kind of going to feature the voyage of John Lennon, who oh. was uh, murdered 38 years ago just yesterday, just yesterday. Yeah. but went on an uh, epic boat trip just before he died, which was, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a minute. But the number here at Boat Talk. one 625 Yeah, and we'll pretty much interrupt ourselves about any time and see what what uh, you want to talk about. So anyway, we run it kind of loose. Hey, uh, we got a bunch of clippings here like we like to do uh, throughout the month. Uh, clip anything that comes over the transom and, and uh, you know, talk about it. For whatever reason, here's one right here. As a matter of fact, there are two clippings that feature our uh, buddy Howard Witten. Remember Howard? World's longest canoe. Oh, okay, yeah. Howard is a uh, teacher uh, over in Newport at Sebastian Valley High School. Mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Sorry, Nokomis uh, High School. And there's been a couple of uh, articles in the paper about uh, Howard and his uh, students. And here's one where they are... Uh, They've gone to a uh, 1800s farmhouse and barn, and they're, they took an underwater camera down a well, and they're doing a little archaeology there. They went around with metal detectors. They've been digging stuff up and, and trying to, uh, you know, put the world back together from, from when they can into it. A camera down into the well, huh? Yeah, huh. and they says, boy, they were, they were uh, partly relieved not to find any skeletons I'm down there. I'm assuming it's a, a dug well then to a big Yeah, well, there's the... Looking for well-beings, yeah, it's maybe. It's got water in it. It's boat talk. So anyway, and Howard also... Um, just got a grant to get a trailer, and in the trailer they moved their stuffed animals, which I believe come from the Smithsonian Institution. Nokomis High School has an incredible 
collection of stuffed animals, uh, moose, <laughs> uh, bobcat, uh, bear, you know, that sort of thing. Dodo. Yeah, yeah. and they, um, they loan them out to other different uh, schools and institutions, and they used to take them around in Howard's truck and pray for good weather, so now they got a van. And So anyway, Howard uh, uh, was on Boat Talk for a project that he did with the students, the world's longest canoe. They mm-hmm. made it an eight-foot plywood sections, bolted it together, and for a couple minutes it held together in Sebastopol. And, 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 and it was 140-something feet. Oh, well, silly. It was huge. Whatever it was, yeah. And we got a world's longest canoe hat, so, you know. Yeah. But anyway, Howard's in the news, and uh, boat, boat Talk alumnus making good, <laughs> pushing for Teacher of the Year or something. Here's some sad news. A periwinkle fisherman, um, if that's the right term, I guess it is, um, missing off a of Lou Beck last week. And uh, this is interesting for a couple reasons. One, um, he was, uh, well, periwinkles, uh, they call them wrinkles, okay? You mm-hmm. can go into stores and, and uh, pickled wrinkles pickled at the wrinkles. counter, you know, yeah. kind of a, a delicacy. Right next to the eggs there. Yeah, exactly, the deviled eggs. So um, here's the thing about periwinkles. You want to pick them on a really, really big tide so that you're getting um, access to places that aren't out in the air all the time. That's where you're going to get your best periwinkles. So you want a really big tide. It's very, very tide-dependent. Um, by the Lubeck Narrows Bridge to the Campobello, uh, Campobello Bridge to uh, Campobello Island there is a good periwinkle spot. And these fellas uh, from Eastport were down there last week. And uh, they came off the flats. One of them uh, yelled to the other one and heard him yelling. The tide was coming in. I uh, looked for him for a little while, thought he was going to be back to the car. He wasn't. He went to the customs house at the bridge there and called for help. That was 10 o'clock at night. Ooh. Mm. 10 o'clock at night, okay? We're talking a 20-foot-plus tide down there. The uh, area that's uncovered at low tide is very extensive. These guys were going out as far as they could. They got caught, and, uh, you know, the tide come in and and caught them in the Mm. dark. So... uh, They've looked for him, and I don't believe they found him. They haven't found the fellow who went missing off of Matinicus in his uh, open lobster, lobster skiff yet either. Mm. So anyway, it is dangerous out there. And here's the other thing about that uh, fishery. Those boys were out there probably because they could and they had to. You know, the, uh, That fishery in particular is a low-entry fishery. You don't need a boat. All you need is a pair of hip boots and a bucket when you get right down to it. It's a very low-entry fishery. So, uh, you know, those boys are subsistence um, gathering, and, you know, at that time of day and those conditions, it cost them his life. Yeah. 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 Well, times are tough, and that is uh, one way people keep scrapping together. Even if you're just getting your own supper, you can do that. 1-866-625-9378 is the number into Boat Talk. And if you'd like to make a pledge, 1-800-643-6273 is the pledge line. I have a pledge already that was called in earlier this week from Barbara down at Hancock. She renewed her uh, her membership to WERU and um, said that she would like to uh, be uh, mentioned on Boat Talk. Thinks that's a, a cool show. Well, you so just thank did. you very much, Barbara. Yeah, and we got company just come in. We'll get to that in a minute. There's one more uh, little note here uh, about uh, boating, uh, a boating kind of thing with, without boats, and this comes from the Rolling Stone of all nautical publications, and this is the hot issue, and it's the scariest new sport. It's called winching. Ooh. Winching, okay. <laughs> and here's what we do. We take a... Um, we take a bindingless board, a surfboard, and we get a diesel 
uh, winch, which we construct from an industrial snowblower motor, chainsaw parts, and parachute cord. And then we find a little pond or a fountain or anything. And we get on one side and we put the winch on the other and we hit go. And, uh, you know. And it's you, a high-speed winch. It's then. a high-speed winch to pull people across the water. And here's the thing that the Rolling Stone points out. Um, this is uh, uh, representing uh, the freshest talent that might have been kept off the water as the boats kept a lot of kids from riding on the water. Now with the winch, it's anybody's game. What happens when you hit the other shore? <laughs> I can't be responsible for any of that. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, winching, the new new hut sport if you can't uh, okay. afford a boat. Yeah. Get we'll yourself an old snowblower motor. <laughs> well, now. That- we got company in here. Yes, I'd like to thank Judith, one of our phone answerers, who uh, drove all the way here from Santa Fe just just to answer the phones. And uh, Judith is uh, also sporting, I couldn't resist, sporting a a sweater today that says the Observer single-handed right on the thing. So I just said, hey, Judith, what are you doing in 15 minutes? So uh, step right up to the microphone there, Judith, and uh, give us a little talk about... uh, the O-Star race. O-Star race. What, what is that exactly? Where does it go? What's it do? Who does that? Well, this is a, this is a bit like having a main license plate in New Mexico. You've got to be really careful out there because <laughs> they want to talk to you. They want to come to Maine, or it used to be that way. Uh, so I had to come home. I got shipwrecked in Santa Fe for a few years, and it was pretty tough because there are no islands and there's not much water. No, not much So I came there. home. I captained a boat for a fellow out of Santa Fe for, uh, you know, 12, 14 years. Well, there are sailors there. There's somebody designing uh, hydraulic keels. uh, uh, I can't even think of who it is, but it has his office in Santa Fe. Yeah. um, My buddy Jerry would get in his Learjet and fly out to Maine and and get in his boat and then fly me wherever I needed to go. And I'm telling you what, if you've got a a yacht and a jet, you can live anywhere you want. Shameless. Utterly shameless. Wow. Those were the days. (laughs) I I like to think of them sometimes. He has not been replaced. (laughs) Well, once upon a time... when I sailed the Observer Single-Handed Transatlantic Race, known as the O-Star, 1980, which is from Plymouth, England, to Newport, Rhode Island. We didn't even have electronic gadgets and gizmos. We had to navigate with sextants and tables. And um, uh, if you if you were uh, good at at uh, Morse code, you could use. Uh, single sideband, and it was pretty primitive, 1980. Uh-huh. It was the Even, last race that prohibited the new generation of electronics. Right. Now, did you have uh, RDFs, radio direction finders? Yeah, was, I had a little were... handheld RDF. Wow, yeah. but they're pretty limited, too. Because very limited, yeah, yeah. Not very many radio stations out in the middle. No. Uh, it's, uh, <laughs> so that, that's uh, really uh, roughing it, as we'd say nowadays. In the, it was, yeah. it definitely was. O-Star, the, the uh, S stands for single-handed. Uh, you were out there by yourself. What kind of boat were you on? I had uh, a Danish designed and built boat um, called a BB-10 meter, and she'd had to be modified because 10 meters is a little longer than 32 feet. And <clears throat> there were three classes in the race. The large class, which was um, Ponduik, named for Eric Taberly's famous boat, and then there was a medium-sized class, and I was in the small boat class in the maximum length, overall length. That was the only rule. Overall length mm-hmm. was 32 feet. So we modified her slightly. She had a, an intrepid-like bow and a lopped-off transom. And uh, that, there's a sort of classic uh, Scandinavian type that <clears> – <throat> 
you you might think of the soling is a good modern uh, example of this type. They're they're narrow beam boats. Mine was also ultra light, and um, uh, they have graceful lines. Uh, they're generally very handsome boats. She was of course fiberglass built by a very well known boatyard, uh, Borison Brothers, and had already made a southern transatlantic passage with the two younger Borison's sons and had set some sort of a record. Who cares? These records rise and fall all the time. But I picked her up. I knew she was for sale. Uh, I was looking for a boat for the race. Um, I had already sailed one solo race, <clears throat> Newport to Bermuda, the Bermuda 1-2. Uh, I, believe it or not, chartered a Nicholson 31 for that race. Can you imagine anybody having... <laughs> <laughs> Lend me your boat. I want to sail a solo race. For a race. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well. What well, could go wrong? Did I say that out loud? <laughs> well, nothing went wrong. Did you, did, you, yeah. did you tell them that you were going to race it when you chartered it? Of course. Uh -huh. Yeah, it was a, an old friend, a Navy friend named uh, Bart Benbar okay. who yeah. let me do that. And I did very well. I, I finished second uh, overall, and uh, I liked it. I've always loved racing and ocean racing, and that was, um, you know, that was pretty good baptism. How did you fit into the pack with all the other women? <laughs> pack? <laughs> I was the pack. That's what I was kind of getting at. <laughs> well, uh, people, some people will remember um, uh, Claire Francis. Claire Francis, the English woman who was the first to undertake one of these long solo races. And uh, uh, Claire, th this is, you know how it goes. It, one thing just leads to another. Claire was set to, she was contracted to appear in a series of commercials for Nescafe Coffee um, as a solo sailor. And she was pregnant, so they were looking for an understudy. And, and uh, I got called on as, as a prospect. And I, so I made that commercial for Nescafe Coffee. And as my mother used to say to me, she said, you know, no matter what else you do in your life that's really good, you're always going to be remembered for that damn coffee commercial. <laughs> <laughs> and it ran, it ran for two and a half years, and it would frequently appear on late night television and so forth. So uh, um, Claire had done it. And then in the 1980 race, uh, there were three of us of the uh, fairer sex, um, Naomi James, now Dame Naomi James from New Zealand, and uh, Florence Alto from France, who is very accomplished. And, and uh, my um, sailing reputation was mostly in lasers and international 14s and 505s. <laughs> and uh. so, Walter Green said, she's great, you know, she's a terrific helmsman. <laughs> so Walter Green, who a lot of people know, is a boat builder. Famous multi-hull fellow. Yeah, yes. famous multi-hull fellow. Yeah, well, Walt, yeah Walter uh, was... was um, enthusiastic on, for, on my behalf and <clears throat> it was a you know it's a big thing you bite off a big a big piece like that and you wonder if you're ever going to be able to chew it up and swallow it down because not only did I, I sail the race I had to sail my boat across I was living in Annapolis fitted out in Annapolis and sailed across uh, to Plymouth and I had one person with me at the time a South African fellow I had met on previous 
sail sailing adventures and and uh, <clears throat> we had we had a really bad force ten gale in the English Channel, so it was right there in the approach to to Plymouth where I got washed over the side, but I had my Laraka safety harness on. Mm. So there we go, you know. And did you just pull yourself back on? Well, Chris came on deck, and uh, I mean, it, it was rough. It was it was the biggest. It was rough. It's the channel, and when it be, when it heats itself up over there, it's it's pretty substantial, formidable seas. And so we surfed into Plymouth Basin, and and uh, it was all. You know, it's a, it, the O-Star, <clears throat> which has since, I believe its name is now changed, and it's no longer sponsored by the Observer, but it still takes place every four years. It is the single-handed transatlantic mm. race. So it's a big deal in England. It was, you know, like the Kentucky Derby. There were huge crowds. There were bookmakers. And there were, uh, I think... Uh, I think originally we were seven Americans entered, and it was the year that Phil Weld won the race uh, <clears throat> from Gloucester in Moxie, the famous trimaran. These, uh, uh, and I was one of three. We had three monohull American boats in the race, Francis Stokes and uh, sailing his 40-footer and um, Jerry Cartwright <clears throat> um, sailing a little... Uh, um, Beneteau the first was the name of the boat. I don't remember, but you know. So we were the mono hulls, as Phil Phil would draw out the O and make it sound so <laughs> mournful. The mono hulls, and the conditions of that race, which um, it didn't have any any terrible storms as some of the previous O stars had. People, a lot of people have lost their lives in these races. Yeah. It's something you don't take lightly. You no, understand. Yeah. Not yeah. casual to untie the boat and go. No, yeah. no, no. And, and uh, I was a novice and <clears throat> I knew Phil, Phil Weld, who, who was a little bit of my mentor on this. He said, listen, first time I lost my boat. Second time I lost my boat. Third time. And he knew he was going to win. It's it was just some, uh, somehow in the stars that Phil and he did win the race, and he he set a record. And that was uh, that's a long time ago. You know, that's twenty eight years ago. What do you do for your sailing jollies nowadays, Judith? Well, my sailing jollies. I love it whenever I'm invited out on on an OP and other persons, other people's boats. Very smart. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, I, I really haven't done very much sailing in this past summer, particularly. Um, I'm all involved in renewable energy and, and climate disruption research. And, but I've, I've hooked up. I'm working with um, a fellow named Ted Regan, who's a Maine Maritime graduate um, and was a navigation officer on ships for 10 or so years. I'm working with the Bioneers Conference that Ted started in Portland. We had our first, the Bioneers was founded in California 20 years ago. It's like a network of networks, and a lot of people say it's the environmental conference. And we had our first one in Portland, our first northern New England Bioneers Conference. So, and I'm going down to Buenos Aires, uh, Argentina, in a, f in a couple of weeks to join up with Ted and some others to work on our 2009 conference. So there, will, there is inevitably some sort of water sport involved in all of this. You know, we get out in kayaks at least. Could always get yourself a winch if you... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> when all else fails, yeah. get a winch. I once wrote a column for a British uh, sailing magazine called View from Abroad. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good I one. I could write a oh. column on winching and, you know, yeah. with our tongues up, all yeah. of our cheeks. Transcontinental winching. Now. There'll be no yeah. more puns from me here this morning. Yeah. We are doing boat talk this morning, and uh, it's also the fundraising edition. If you want to 
Uh, call and make a pledge. And Judith, and who else is out there answering the phones? Larry. Larry. Larry uh, and Judith, yeah. Now it's Elaine. Eileen. Okay. Eileen, yeah. 1-800-643-6273 is the number to uh, support Boat Talk, if you could imagine such a thing, you know. We do it because it's fun. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll pretty much show up anyway, but we do need these microphones and the electricity and the lights and Joel in there running the board. And, you know, like I say, it's not a casual thing to untie this. Keep it's and, not. Uh, it costs $100, $100 an hour to keep this radio station going. It'd be nice if Boat Talk were at least to, able to pay for itself. Yeah. I, and keep I, us afloat, folks. <laughs> I say the same thing uh, to myself every time I do the Barefoot Blues Hour, especially uh, tomorrow morning. Alan does the Extra Large Soul Show on Thursday. Thursday afternoons, my habit when I leave uh, the board is I look at it and I go, I can't believe they let me play with this, you know, but they do, and it's it's so cool. So we're asking you to support it this morning, 1-800-643-6273. Uh, Judith, I'd like to go, go back and, and talk um, first about uh, getting washed overboard again. Uh, what, was, what were you doing just at the time, and, and what would you do different now? I was steering. It was a tiller. You were at the helm. It was a tiller uh, with a shallow, small, shallow cockpit. Um, very, very serious lifelines, of course. And <clears throat> uh, these big seas. Now, mind you, Force Ten is in excess of hurricane force winds, and the seas in the channel were far and away the biggest I've ever seen. And I have been out in. I've been offshore in a hurricane before. But there, there's something about, you know, the English Channel, if you look at it's it. It's shallow. It's shallow. That makes it and very And Bob rough. Black from Castine showed me, a, a, like, a Google Earth photo of the English Channel, and he said, look at the shape of this. It's just like the Bagadoos. <laughs> it's oh, meant yeah. to be, a, a, just by design, it's a nasty place. Also one of the most uh, crowded waters on Earth. Yes. Very, yes. very busy. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Easy to get run down there. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, we we were reefed down to uh, Storm Trisel and um, just riding it out as best we could, and yet the the seas are so big, and this is coming in to to Plymouth, so we're coming in from the east, and we were a little south of east. Um, uh, had to had had to get some drinking water, <laughs> ran out of drinking water, hailed a ship who was a few miles further to the south than we'd anticipated before the storm came up, and uh, they uh, conveyed not only their their water hose with a pipe on it, but a six pack of very cold, very delicious <laughs> Swedish beer. We were really happy. <laughs> it's good to talk to ships. It's good we? to talk yeah, to ships. Yeah, very interesting people generally. Yeah, but it was just you know a. a Breaking blue water over over the over the deck, uh, inevitably you get Off it. You and, go, and yeah. Big big seas like that that are in shallow water, and it just was enough to flip me out. And so I the Laracus harness. I don't know if they're still made, but that was the that was the standard for uh, uh, harnesses at the time with climbing hardware on it. Um, uh, Steve Laracus, who was a, a, a lot, did a lot of twelve meter sailing, had developed it and, and made them. And uh, my uh, my crewman, Christopher Murdoch, was strong boy. Thank goodness he'd spent a lot of time in the Antarctic and sailing so on many. He boats. heard you. You must have screamed when he went flying. Oh, he he had his head up out, out of the companionway. I had a little bit of a dodger, and he he just po had poked his head up, and I probably screamed. I don't know. Mm. You know, it's chaotic. But the, the tether was just the right length, so it didn't go too far. Yeah. I was sort of draped over the rail. I wasn't really overboard. Mm -hmm. I was, it felt like I was overboard, but I was still in contact. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but it's hair-raising. It definitely makes you very respectful. And in the, uh, the documentary film that was made about that race, in which I'm one of the seven, quote, stars, um, I say something to that effect when uh, Chris, Chris Knight, who made the film, he lives down in, in uh, Deer Isle, Summers and sails out of Deer Isle. Um, this one of the first real, real good seagoing documentaries, and and it wasn't even video. We couldn't do it on video because Sony hadn't made video waterproof yet. This was 1980, so it all had to be Super 8 cameras. And when he interviewed me, I said, "Yeah, I lost all my co all forms of of uh, uh, overconfidence <laughs> on this crossing." Yeah. I gained a you know much more deep respect for the power of the sea. Years ago, I was uh, shipwrecked in Bermuda for a little while, and a boat came in. Um, it came down from Boston, um, and they called the death boat. And it was a doctor from Quebec, his uh, wife, a tiny little infant, and a kid, and grandma, and uh, and a guy to sail the boat. Um, they lost control of the boat going downwind. Uh, full mainsail, just plastered against the spreaders. Uh, couldn't couldn't round up. Couldn't get the sail down. Surfing downwind, out of control. The uh, mate got got uh, washed out over the transom of the boat. Uh, reverse transom. Uh, one of those uh, sugar scoops. Oh no. Um, oh, I'll think of the kind of boat. Swedish uh, uh, high-end yacht. There. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. Very famous yacht. Palmer Johnson. Ah uh, no. no. Uh, Swedish. But anyway. So he surfed on his on his harness over the transom, mind you. Uh, the transom is like a ramp, um, you know, um, back up into the boat. The doctor struggled for 20 minutes to pull him back up into the boat, and at the end of 20 minutes, adrenaline fueled 20 minutes surfing downwind, out of control. The guy had his uh, he had his foul weather gear on, and he just looked up at the doctor. He shook his head. And he shrugged the harness off and went. Made a conscious choice and. Uh, I, I helped move the boat in Bermuda. I get that story from the, all the harbor people in Bermuda. It's uh, just being uh, on the harness is no guarantee that you'll it's come. Not. No, it's not at it's all. Not. <laughs> it's not, and it is. Is you're not thinking at all. It's all. It is all adrenaline. Yeah. And then, then um, uh, just to bring this up too, I, I was dismasted in the race itself, having been through another big storm um, off. Um, um, uh, what's the, what's the island off Newfoundland? You you, t you take I I was on a great circle. Saint Pierre and Miquelon. No, the um the with the shoals all around it. Uh, Sable Island. Sable, right? Yeah. I was coming in closer to I was on course to drink the turn down from Sable, when uh, it was a deck stepped mast. <laughs> it sounds crazy for an ocean racing boat, but it was so solidly rigged. Uh, Proctor Spars had, had uh, rigged it specifically. For, I replaced the mast, um, and uh, one one thing everybody said was, "Your mast will never come down." <laughs> it looked like a forest of rigging, and inner forestay, you know, backstay, running backs, and the whole nine yards. But um, when the mast came down, I mean, the the wind had dropped, the seas were were down, and it was still blowing maybe thirty. And I had just gone below to to get a weather report and when I came I came on deck when I heard the sound it's like the sound of the end of the end of the end it's got crack and it's gone and then you have to cut it away that's you know it's all you just do what you have to do it's simple as that 
Or you die. Or Some you people die. don't do what they have you to do. Made a choice. Some people quit. Yeah. yeah. And they, they're generally the people to go first. We have another thank you. Uh, Tim down in Brooklyn called in and made a contribution to Boat Talk and said he enjoys Boat Talk. Thank you very much, Tim. Well, we've gone almost halfway through Boat Talk now. We haven't got to the John Lennon thing. And uh, we've got another pledge coming another, in. Yep. And we haven't even talked to anybody on the phone yet. Let's mention the. Uh, Nick down in Walterboro. He must be our Archangel Nick down there. Thank you, Nick. Nick the Welder. 1-800-643-6273 is the number for uh, making a pledge to Boat Talk, and 1-866-625-9378 if you'd like to get right on to Boat Talk and discuss whatever we're talking about. Yeah. Um, I think we should talk with uh, with Judith about uh, another local boy, David Rockefeller, who uh, Judith tells me is, is getting... Um, uh, an organization together to help the environment? I just learned about this a couple of weeks ago. Um, David Rockefeller, I think, has summered on, on uh, yes. MDI for yeah, years he, and years. They have an island yeah. over on the west side of the Yeah, and, and I met him during the America's Cup days. I used to cover the America's Cup when it was in Newport. I was the Washington Post sailing writer. Huh. <laughs> I, I made $35 a week doing that. It was a big, big deal. <laughs> so he has formed a foundation called Sailors for the Sea, and this is a true environmental initiative because, fortunately, people who go to sea for pleasure and joy and recreation are beginning to um, own up to the fact that we gotta, we got to change our ways a lot. So Sailors for the Sea has built a 54-foot steel-hulled vessel. Her, I don't know any details on her, and it's on the West Coast. The plan is um, to sail this boat as, as their vehicle for in educating and informing people all around the Americas. That means North and South America. They're going to go up the West Coast through the Northwest Passage, mm -hmm. down the East Coast. So we'll see them. They're stopping. At, it's a coast-wise voyage, so they'll stop 30 different ports, I think. They'll be here, I'm We'll sure. see if we can get in. In, in contact with them, maybe even have somebody uh, come on boat talk. Yeah, it's a nice by. website. Sailors, Google Sailors for the Sea, and you'll find the website. And sailors for the yeah. Sea. Grandmother Google, thank goodness. Captain yes. Grandmother Google. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good thing to do, I think, for the environment. We certainly need all the help it can get right now. So thank you very much, Judith. Um, We'll you're welcome. You, we'll let you get back and to answer some phones. And if you'd like to call up and speak with Judith while you're making a pledge, just call 1-800-643-6273 is the pledge number. Yes, and remember, the first rule of life is stay afloat. Stay afloat. So help us stay afloat here. There you go. <laughs> Thank you, Judith. Yep. Well, once again, we are doing Boat Talk this morning. The number here to uh, call into the program. We uh, haven't taken a call yet, but... You know, it's kind of it's kind of a loose goose here. One eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight is the boat talk number. We wanted to talk this morning about uh, the voyage of John Lennon, and uh, we, uh, um, you know, it's a theme around boat talk. Oh, it's the phones just ringing. We'll get yeah. to that in a minute. Yeah. Well, I think John Lennon's going to be quite a long story. So let's get to the phone call yeah. first, and we'll then we'll get back to John Lennon. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. This is Captain Yosarian. Oh, Captain Yo. Captain Yo, you're getting to be a regular suspect. Well, I try to be. Uh, I'm, I'm saying it's mostly a good thing, you know. Not always <laughs> available on Tuesday mornings. But I wanted to thank uh, Judith for sharing those stories. They really are very enlightening. Uh, I don't think there's uh, 
enough time for me to describe the near cap size of the market sloop dandelion, but um, what I would like to ex- express is that uh, with all the expansion of yachting and boating and equipment and all the people who are finding a way to recreate on the water, what I see a lot of is complacency. People think they're okay out there, and they rely on their equipment, and they get themselves into a tough spot, and and then they need help. Now, you know, it's sort, it's sort of like mountain climbing, you know, and when professionals go out there and do a good job it's and get in trouble, it's not that big a deal. But like the mountains, the seas are covered with neophytes who shoved off in half-baked vessels without knowing what they're doing. And, uh, you know, it gives sailors a bad name and puts other people at risk. And I just think it's a, it's a good thing what you all are doing and sharing, sharing the importance of respecting the sea and realizing what a completely senseless and overwhelming force it can present to anyone who's silly enough to adventure upon it in a tiny little craft. So anyway, that was the comment I wanted to make. And uh, once again, thanks for putting on this wonderful show. Yo, it was down in um, uh, Halifax a few years back, and we uh, were anchored off the Armdale Yacht Club in the Northwest Arm there. It's a working man's yacht club just up from the Royal Nova Scotian Yacht Squadron, which is not a working man's yacht club, okay? They have there a little mass derrick crane, and the boys at the yacht club, they step and unstep their own mass. Now, being a boatyard fellow, I was very impressed with that. It's not really that casual to pick up a mast and set it into a boat, you know. You really kind of want to know what you're doing. You can get in a lot of trouble. And the idea that they had this user, uh, anybody could use a crane, kind of blew me away, you know. And it was a really nice design. So I'm talking to one of the fellows, and he says, yeah, we, we picked that up from a boatyard down in Cape Breton. He says, he says it's a... Uh, Pretty much, uh, I says, but it's not. It can't be idiot proof. He goes, idiot proof. No such thing. He says, idiot resistant is all we hope for, because they're always making better idiots, you know. <laughs> and boating is becoming that way too. It's becoming kind of, kind of uh, idiot, uh, idiot resistant, you know, with all the modern advantages that we have, our radars, our GPSs, all that kind of stuff. It gets easier all the time, but it's never going to be idiot proof, is it? I observe it's not idiot-proof. Yeah, I think so, too. It's well, just an easier way for an idiot to get further from shore. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Yo. Yeah, thank you once again. Good morning, Yo. Have a good day. One. Well, it's coming up on a quarter to uh, the end of Boat Talk here, and we really, I really would like to tell this John Lennon story here. <laughs> I know you. And uh, this, uh, there's a new book out called John Lennon, A Life. Uh, Philip Norman. Norman is a big uh, Beatles biographer. They hired him a long time ago to tell the Apple story, for instance. And, uh, you know, he is knows the uh, the Beatles stories inside and out and out and out. So um, I found this book at the library and was uh, very excited. I passed it on to a friend of mine who is a huge Beatles musicologist, you know, and he says, ah, I've heard of it, not really that interested. He says, oh, but there's supposed to be New stuff in here about Yoko's sex life I'm interested in. I'll check that out and get back to you. Okay, great. So he, he uh, gets back to me and he says, well, I, I didn't find the stuff about Yoko, but there's a boat story in here that you'll love. And he kind of told me the boat story over the phone. 
I got the book back, and then uh, one Sunday morning, very early, I am searching through the book to try to find the story. And as I'm reading it, I realize that I know the fella involved is a friend of mine. Um, the captain uh, of, of the story, Captain Hank Halstead, is a friend of mine from the Hinkley Company from years ago. Oh, yeah. He, he used yeah. to live in uh, Somerville for many yeah. years. Hank is a uh, boat broker down in uh, Newport at the present time. Now, let's set the scene. This is uh, 1979, I believe. Uh, Lennon was shot in 1980. And uh, John had been living uh, with Yoko for the last five years or so, uh, raising Sean. They're living at the Dakota, and they are, um, among other things, uh, they've kicked heroin. They have a little uh, thing where they kind of do other people uh, with each other's permission, you know, and... Uh, um, they also have a no art pledge, no piano, no drawing. That, that just seems boggles no my mind. no art pledge, yeah. So yeah. anyway, John is not in a creative frame of mind. He's, he's raising the boy. He's, you know, he's away from the music and the art. And uh, Yoko gets a new assistant. Yoko's assistant says, hey, I know where I can get some heroin. Yoko says, why would you tell me that? Mm -hmm. And then a couple of, a little while later, comes back and says, really? And so Yoko's back on the heroin secretly. John doesn't know this. Yoko's looking for some alone time now, okay? And among other things, she fixed him up with a uh, estate on the north shore of Long Island, which came with a boat. And uh, so John, his assistant, and the kid from the boatyard end up out sailing on Long Island Sound with young Sean, who's four years old. Sean still remembers the boat capsizing and his bright sandals, uh, flip-flops, floating away, <laughs> you know. But that lit a spark in John, and he decided he wanted to go for a boat ride. So he got together with the kid from the boatyard, and they found a boat. It says, uh, and Yoko's uh, involvement in this, he, she wants him to go for a trip uh, for her reasons and for his. She also is uh, kind of superstitious and stuff. And it says, uh, originally, Yoko's psychics were to have, this is from uh, John Lennon, the wife, Philip Norman, the uh, chapter starting over. Originally, Yoko's psychics were to have selected the yacht, but in the end, Tyler Cooney's expertise took precedence. Tyler was the kid uh, from the boatyard who uh, originally taught John how to sail the boat uh, on Long Island. The chosen vessel was a 43-foot sloop, the Megan J, based in Newport, Rhode Island, and skippered by a bearded salt named Hank Halstead. You could have knocked me over with a feather when I read that and realized, like I said, my friend Hank. So anyway, astrology and numerology could not be denied, though, and in the selection of John's sailing, sailing companions. Eventually, only four passed this unusual seagoing test. Tyler, his two cousins, Kellen, uh, Kevin and Ellen Coonies, and the skipper, Captain Hank. The journey of 700 miles traversed busy cargo and tanker routes and unpredictable weather zones, including the notorious Bermuda Triangle, where ships and aircrafts were wont to disappear without a trace. But the Megan J was a modern, well-equipped vessel, and her crew, though fewer than was usual on such a voyage, seemed more than capable of handling it. On June 4th, John bade Sean, John bade Sean a tearful farewell and sailed out of Newport with his new group. The Megan J's equipment included a weather fax which coughed out regular bulletins from larger craft with satellite forecasting systems. Each spoke confidently of an uneventful crossing, and for a couple of days this prediction seemed spot on. The weather was idyllic, with unbroken sunshine, flat seas, and schools of dolphins curving off the bow. John was particularly exhilarated to see a large bank of cloud dropping back behind the stern. 
In the communal cabin, he found himself living in closer proximity to other people than he had since traveling around by van with the Beatles. He shared a watch with Tyler Cooney's and acted as the ship's cook, providing a healthy diet dominated by vegetables and brown rice. Though he liked and got along with all three Cooney's, his closest rapport was with Captain Hank, the shipmate nearest to him in age. Before becoming a charter skipper, Hank had lived through the psychedelic area, promoted rock concerts with acts like Big Brother and the Holding Company, at one stage even running a drug clinic. He treated John with a total lack of deference mixed with profound respect for the musical talents so long inexplicably on hold. Hey, you just affected 50 million people there to the positive big boy, he said in one of their chats. What are you going to do to follow that up? The radio happened to be playing a lot of Wings tracks like Silly Love Songs and Coming Up. Tyler Cooney's recalls how the sound of Paul's voice seemed to make John think, Jesus, what am I doing sitting here? I should get up and do something because it's not that hard. And again, we're reading from John Lennon, The Life, Philip Norman. Then came one of those capricious weather changes for which the Bermuda Triangle is notorious. The first sign was the turning of the water from turquoise to gray, then blue-black. A flotilla of military ships appeared and circled the Megan Jay as if tut-tutting and shaking their heads. Then a storm broke with 65-mile-an-hour winds and 20-foot-high waves. Judith was just talking about that's a Force 10 gale right there. Mm -hmm. Been there, done that, and I'm telling you, it kind of gets your attention. So anyway, the uh, storm broke with 65-mile-an-hour winds and 20-foot-high waves. Not the worst experienced uh, by her crew, but bad enough for the smallest shot way out there where one couldn't turn back or pull over to the side of the road. The most hardened sailors occasionally get seasick, and now it was with all three of the Coonsies. As the Megan Jay heaved and corkscrewed, Tyler, Kevin, and Ellen could take no further part in handling her, but lie only prostate on their bunks. Captain Hank was unaffected, however, and so amazingly was John. A cleansing fast that he put himself through in the first days of the voyage undoubtedly helped. He said that having weathered heroin and cold turkey made any tempest seem small by comparison, and he, quote, learned to control throwing up. Mm -hmm. not, <laughs> not the recommended cure for a No, season. that's <laughs> not a training you'd take at the Maritime Academy. But anyway, Captain Hank stayed at the wheel for 48 hours, then dazed with fatigue, shouted to John in his usual unceremonious fashion, I'm going to need some help here, big boy. Though John had often steered the ISIS off of Cold Spring Harbor, this was like a quarryman being told to back Jerry Lee Lewis. Hey, Hank, he protested, I've just got these little guitar-playing muscles here. But the skipper would brook no shirking. That ain't the kind of strength I'm looking for. Just come back and drive this puppy. I'll tell you what to do. John gingerly took over as the helmsman, and Captain Hank barked out a few basic instructions. You don't jibe. You don't let the wind get across the back of the boat. Then gave him a course to follow. He picked it up fast, his instructor would recall. His intuition about this kind of stuff was remarkable. Captain Hank remained watchfully close for a while and then decided it was safe to grab some desperately needed sleep. Left in charge of a 43-foot sloop solely responsible for the safety of four people, John was at first almost paralyzed with panic, but gradually connected with the boat and began to understand its responses almost as issy, if, as if it had been some great silver-bodied guitar. His fear passed, and he began to enjoy himself, roaring out every obscene sea chanty he had ever heard around the Liverpool docks to the screaming audience of wind and waves. He also later remembered shouting, Freddy, feeling a sudden kinship with the father who had sacrificed everything for the sea, 
and who had returned from a watery lost weekend on a ship named the Monarch of Bermuda. When I came back on deck, this was a man who was just enraptured, Captain Hank would remember. It was a stimulus worthy of the stimulus-addicted guy. The storm changed John's, ch John's status on the boat from celebrity passenger and paymaster to bonafide crew member, able to take on and handle anything the others did. He even helped Captain Hank carry out repairs to the mainsail after Megan and Jay had drifted without sails for a whole day. That would have been a sight for his Liverpool buddies who remembered him being unable to even change a light bulb. He was unrecognizable as the landlubber who had come aboard in Newport, though to Captain Hank, every new surprising capability seemed somehow natural. I would venture to say that he discovered the tremendously strong man who had always been there. As well as sustaining damage to fabric and fixtures, they had been blown a considerable way off course and did not reach Hamilton, Bermuda until June 11th. Before going ashore, John wrote an appreciative message in the logbook. Dear Megan, there's no place like nowhere, TC 1980. Plus, thanks. Hank loved John Lennon, and underneath he sketched a sailboat, a shining sun, and his own smiling bearded face. <laughs> That's not the end of the story, though. The story, in a way, gets even cooler than that. He uh, rented a house in Bermuda for a couple months after that, um, you know, flew the kid down and stuff, and had the spark. He wrote Double Fantasy immediately after that boat trip. Went back into the studio, recorded Double Fantasy, was back. That was a, that was a breakthrough. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, he was, uh, you know, shot um, and killed 38 years ago yesterday, coming back from an all-night recording session. John Lennon's uh, Voyage. It changed his life. Too bad he didn't get to uh, go on in that direction any further, though, isn't it? Well, it kind of makes you think he might have wanted to do it again. And uh, it's a theme on Boat Talk here. And, and uh, you know, we've talked about the danger of the ocean this morning. But we've also uh, uh, continually talked about the fact that you can always be learning out to sea. It's one of the great oh, things yeah. about it. And the fact that it is dangerous and requires skill and you can learn makes nice feedback loop. You know, so you do something, you find you, you can do it. It's like, uh, you know, taking the, taking the helm in that storm. Um, same thing happened to us in a Force 10 gale going to Bermuda. Half the crew went down into the bunks and, and they could not function. They quit. Mm -hmm. They were very upset, kind of ugly about it, too. When they finally come back up on deck and were persuaded to take the wheel, um, they did it very nervously. And you sit there and, and the boat goes up, the boat goes down, and it does it enough times, and pretty soon you get if not happy, a little bit comfortable. And, uh, you know, you find you can do it. And when you get into Bermuda and get a bowl of Bermuda onion soup and a beer, you want to do it again. <laughs> you want to see if you can do better this time, you know. And, and I'm telling you, it's a life-changing thing. So big hinge in John Lennon's life was yeah. that boat voyage. And, again, we're reading, reading from John Lennon, the life, uh, Philip Norman. Well, yes, we did. We're, although we're coming right up with the... the uh at the end of Boat Talk for another week, and I'd like to take this time to thank uh, people who have called up during this show. They called 1-800-643-6273 to make a pledge, and uh, thanks go out to Nick down in Walderboro. Uh, Norma from, from Monroe um, calls up. She said she really loves the show, and she doesn't even have a boat. Tim from Brooklyn called, said he enjoys um, Boat Talk, and thank you to... Barbara from Hancock, who pledged earlier but wanted to be on Boat Talk. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah, it's a good thing Yo called along with all those other people because it is a call-in show, and, and we've just been yakking away this morning. And uh, 
we didn't get to the thing about the United States Coast Guard is in bad shape. And uh, they were throwing money like uh, uh, it was going out of style after 9-11, and they have spent it very, very badly. And the Coast Guard is in a bit of crisis. We didn't get to that, let alone the uh, money crises in local uh, funding for... Um, you know, the government overlooking shellfish harvesting, uh, buoys, the fishery situation, uh, you know, a lot of stuff we didn't talk about. Yeah, money is going to be a big so, topic for the next few months, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's snowing out, it's December, it's boat talk, and there's no way we could run out of things to talk about um, if we did it right, let alone all the people, uh, you know, that we love to talk to. Piracy, we didn't even touch the no. piracy thing. No, piracy's That big, was kind of going to be the huge part of this, <laughs> yep, uh, yep. you know. So you never know how boat talk's going to go, but... Perhaps could I suggest that's part of the charm of it and why we ask you to support it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know? Yeah, we have no set course. That's And for sure. who else would dare to untie the boat not knowing which way you're headed? But Alan and I have kind of inherited the show, and uh, we've been doing it for, what, 10-plus years now? Yeah, we've been drifting, yeah, for about almost 10 years now. Yeah, and we do it because uh, it's pretty fun, to tell you the truth. And uh, it's my my favorite joke now. I'm a boat builder in real life, but I, uh, even more, even better, I play an expert on the radio, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, I think it's about time for us to say goodbye and make room for Jim Glamourboy Bahoosh, who is going to be coming up next to the, on the wing. Thanks to uh, Joel Joel Mann down in the engine room for keeping things on an even keel. This is Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce saying goodbye for now. I used to buy the bills of mode and I used to buy the sales, sir. I used to buy the catches of fish and take some home to lie, sir. Talk is made possible.